Okay, welcome to You Talking with Greg. Uh, I am thrilled uh, to have my friend Bruce Alterman here uh, to share with us some of his story, his perspective. Uh, Bruce and I really haven't been talking that long, uh, but I fell into some of his work on integral grammatology and I was like, Oh my God, this guy is super deep. I want to talk to this guy. And ever since we've had a number of wonderful conversations and my horizons are broadening every time we do. So Bruce, welcome so much. And uh, thanks so much to the podcast. Wonderful. Yeah, thank you. It's a delight to be here. And uh, I really have felt uh, in sync with your recent video that we just put out in <laughs> resonance um, with you and your ideas. Um, really love what you're doing and exploring. And uh, I don't know if you remember, probably our first contact was, uh, I think it was in the metamodernism group, you were posting some of your ideas, and I asked you if you'd ever checked out uh, E.F. Schumacher and the Guide for the Perplexed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that you, you, looks like that might be a, a precursor, uh, someone anticipating some of where you're going. So That's so cool because I actually, somebody just reminded me of that. So here's the story of Ema, Shoemaker. Um, I, I think I circled into his idea at some point when I was actually in the Wilbur community, and I vaguely mm -hmm. remember that. But I didn't look at it carefully, uh, and, and I literally read that book. Uh, I skimmed it maybe then at one point. I read it because somebody prompted it uh, within the last two weeks. <laughs> I read wow. it through and through. Um, and it is, it's a remarkable, in fact, I was gonna, I was gonna do either a blog on that. So this is the synchronicity and the syncness between us. That's so cool that you were that prompt, but I was gonna do actually a blog on updating a guide to a perplex through a, the you talk and TOK. It's a remarkable, um, you know, simple, really easy to read, uh, but remarkably uh, congruent with the uh, unified theory of knowledge on many, many levels. It's a fascinating uh, moment for you to bring that up. That's cool. Yeah, I, I remember that now, but uh, I had forgotten uh, that that was our first contact. That book impressed me back in college. I was at a, a Christian university at the time and was mostly exploring contemplative and uh, more spiritual kinds of uh, texts, <clears throat> but I picked up that book and that was one of the first kind of prompts that stirred me to look more seriously at philosophy. Uh -huh. um, and so that book stuck with me. It was very simple, but very direct and elegant and uh, unifying. And, you know, it was one of the, I think, early prompts also towards looking for uh, models of coherence for me. Yes, I think it's got a lot of resonance with Ken Wilber. Uh, I don't know if Ken Wilber, I certainly thought of that as I read it. Uh, so just to, for folks that don't know uh, the book at all, I think it's a 1977 book, if I recall. Um, but it essentially is critiquing the materialist flatland scientific view. Uh, it is trying to revitalize and bridge uh, essentially a great chain of being, uh, a sophisticated philosophy, a respect uh, for a sophisticated theology. And you have a, it has a Christian flavor to it, um, but it really does a beautiful job of arguing against reductionism, it lays out um, almost sort of mathematically, it started to lay out, well, first there are matter minerals, uh, and then you add to that uh, life, and then you add to that for him consciousness, and then you add to it self-awareness, and it's like, you know, plus A, plus B, plus C, plus D, uh, and each of these is self-awareness and consciousness and life, and that's exactly uh, a tree of knowledge ontology. 
Um, and then it then moves into an epistemological frame of reference from viewed from the inside and then other insides. And then a, has a very clear behavioral view from the outside. It's a really, really, uh, and that just maps and it's so rich and textured across the various levels and, and very alive. And I appreciate, especially now, I would have been, you know, been my own atheistic background. Like, oh, okay, it's a little spiritual. Now it's like, no, it's a mature spirituality view that he's trying to uh, garner respect for. So it's a, I, I really encourage folks to um, take a look at that. And it's like 126 pages plus a 20 page appendix. And you basically are like, you know, a day, day and a half and you're through it. And it's a really, really worthwhile piece of work. Definitely agree. Yeah. And I think he probably did at least implicitly influence Wilbur, though I haven't seen Wilbur uh, reference him. Well, I'm certainly citing him in my current book as I articulate uh, that on a couple of different places. So, yeah. so anyway, that's a, you know, this is just, it's an endless of what we could talk about. Um, <laughs> so one thing I do want to ask you, because I haven't really gotten this um, story yet, and it'd be really good because I, um, I'm really feeling a synergy with the integral stage world. And, uh, you know, I'll, this conversation should probably will come out on my podcast right after the one with Layman Pascal, um, or at least in a similar sequence. Uh, so my uh, affinity to you and Layman is, is strong. And I'd love to then hear your uh, sort of story about your um, getting into integral and what you see in the integral world and the construction of integral stage and just your background and history in that community. Sure, sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I think I came across Wilbur's books when I was fairly young. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think I was uh, maybe late teens or something like that when I came yeah. across Wilbur's books initially, and I didn't like them. Mm. Um, I, I thought that they were too heady and too abstract. And um, I just didn't relate to what he was trying to do. Interesting. Um, but a number of things kind of unfolded in my life at that time mm -hmm. and uh, prompted, you know, I think some significant internal changes and okay. external changes that eventually led me around to appreciate him. Mm. Uh, I think maybe just before that time, I had gone through in high school a mm -hmm. series in a very short period of multiple tragedies. Mm -hmm. Many people I knew in my life died Wow. in a very short span of time. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Most of them students in my school, just mm. different things happen, shootings and suicides and accidents and just boom, 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 boom. It just, wow. um, it, it all happened at once and it really devastated me. Mm. And uh, mm. a friend's mother offered to send me on a retreat up to the mountains to get away from the horrible pall that had settled over mm. our small town in Texas okay. after all of those events. And mm. um, I responded to that and went to the retreat okay. and had a very beautiful experience up in the mountains where mm. I felt very, very uh, deep sense of communion with mm. just with the, the landscape and the, and the mm. silence and, and the, the, the majestic, you know, earth mm. and something in that sense of uh, openness and silence and presence really struck me as a, you know, as, as a spiritual moment for me. Okay. And I could see my own kind of internal, 
self-contraction and anguish right. and, and, and what had turned into a kind of knot of anger around all mm-hmm. of that. Sure. Mm-hmm. And I decided this looks like a scar mm. <laughs> in the midst of this pristine um, open wilderness that wow. where things are what they are without mm. complaint. And that mm. just like shifted something in me. And I, I decided I can choose not to let these events turn me into the angry person I was becoming. Wow. And so the first place I looked was Christianity. Cause that's the only thing sure. I knew. Mm-hmm. And uh, because of that experience up in the mountains, I, I looked immediately towards more of a contemplative mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. A Christian approach. Okay. Couldn't really find it, especially mm-hmm. in a small town in Texas. <laughs> um, I approached Catholic priests and I couldn't find anybody who knew what I was talking about mm-hmm. um, in terms of the kind of sensibility <clears throat> I was feeling. Right, and right. Um, about I what tried time to go, is this? I'm sorry, uh, I interrupted you. About what time? Oh, yeah, this was probably, you know, 17 years old, maybe uh-huh. something like that, maybe. Right. And about yeah. you, how old are you? Just out of curiosity, because I'm guessing we're in the similar ballpark there. About. Oh, yeah, I'm, I think, uh, 45 now. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can position myself in that timeline. <laughs> right. Right. Yes. Yeah, so um, I was, uh, yeah, looking for for something, I, I discovered the books of Thomas Merton, and because mm. I was writing poetry at the time, and somebody okay. said, "Oh, your poetry sounds a little bit like Merton," and they handed me, and I read his Seven Story Mountain, and you know, that inspired me to look maybe at a contemplative life, but mm. it didn't happen. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. But in that in that whole time period when I was looking then at spiritual books, um, you know, eventually I came across. Uh, some Ken Wilber books and some right. books by Jiddu Krishnamurti and mm. uh, some other things. And they began to pull me, uh, even Thomas Merton's books where he was meeting with Dzogchen masters and with, mm-hmm. and, and traveling over to Asia to dialogue. I was opening towards more of an interspiritual sensibility, not just, I, I wasn't finding a home right. in, in Christianity where I was looking. Right. Uh, so I began looking more, more broadly. And at that time, Krishnamurti really impressed me. Mm-hmm. He, he was very, very much about paying deep attention to what's happening in consciousness without metaphysical ideas, without religious attachments, mm-hmm. um, just really attending to the nature of thought and consciousness mm-hmm. and all the complexes like fear and guilt and envy mm-hmm. and all those things mm-hmm. in a very direct, immediate way that was shorn of kind of the metaphysics that were disappointing me in the mm-hmm. Christian communities. Right. Um, so I, I ended up going to a Christian college and mm-hmm. had some beautiful experiences and some very, very difficult experiences with mm-hmm. the conservative people who, right. yeah, you know, made me feel uncomfortable. Sure. Um, so I think it was through that, that I, I, I saw Wilbur's books initially and they didn't really impact me. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. But then a number of different events happened. Um, my mother ended up with a very difficult divorce. We lost mm. everything. Wow. And uh, I dropped out of college and my mother and I went on the road with no house and only $800 between us. Because um, she'd had a million dollar like business. Adventure? Uh, really? Yeah, it was. Uh, uh, she'd had like a million dollar a year business that got crashed in this terrible divorce and just absolutely lost everything. Um, so we just went on the road and uh, ended up living in the wilderness for 
uh, about half a year um, while we tried to get our feet, but we lived out. We drove to Arizona and I lived in the wilderness and hiked the canyons every day. And of course I looked for work, but no one wants to hire somebody who doesn't have a home. Mm -hmm. But eventually I did find a home. I mean, I did find work and then right, we were able right. to save money and we got a home restarted yeah. and everything's, you know, back on track. We never imagined mm -hmm. ourselves as homeless mm -hmm. just on, you know, uh, uh, just as a period of, of neat, you know, um, a nomadic period of being wow. cut loose from <laughs> the Remarkable. familiar. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> I bet, I bet if a lot of us listeners are like, wow, that would be cutting loose from the familiar. Huh. That's it, pretty it, it, uh, that's pretty it, it definitely was, you know, it was like a, uh, an immersion in, in, in a lot of frightening things, but also some really remarkable things. I had probably some of my first kind of intensive several day mystical experiences while out in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and so those things really started sparking something new in me. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I think this is just, you know, coincidence but i remember out being out walking in the wilderness in uh turning a corner and looking at a vista and thinking that looks just like india even mm. though i had never seen india and didn't have any mm. sense of india but right after that some things just began rolling that eventually led me over to asia wow. um hmm. i got offered a i was you know got offered a teaching job in korea okay and I went to Korea and taught a couple years and, huh. and studied some meditation there and music. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, and then I had money and I decided to, to go travel. And I went to Indonesia for a year and Malaysia and Thailand. Wow. Um, and then I went to India for another year and to Nepal. And so during all that time, I lived mostly at ashrams and monasteries mm -hmm. um, or at a Krishnamurti school in India. Mm -hmm. So they afforded a lot of time for study. Mm -hmm. um, and I was able to read, you know, many, many different um, books on philosophy and, and spirituality and, and um, art. And I studied music everywhere I was. Um, and when I eventually came back. I actually met a Tibetan Lama in Nepal that I had a really immediate connection with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I asked him if I could stay there and live with him in his monastery and study. Mm -hmm. And he said, yes, but you need to finish any kind of outstanding obligations back home first. I don't want you staying mm -hmm. here if you have unsettled business back home. Okay. And I said, I haven't finished my undergraduate. He said, you better go finish that. Your parents won't forgive me if you stay here and, mm. and forgo that. Right. Okay. Um, so I went back and finished it. Okay. And uh, interestingly, within two weeks after returning to Texas to finish that from all that exotic adventure, uh -huh. I met somebody who turned out to have been raised by this Lama in Nepal. Huh. And yeah. he was just visiting town that week and i just uh -huh. met him uh -huh. um and yeah so i began studying with him eventually went to virginia and lived at his house in virginia yeah. for a couple of years wow. but it was during that period that i came across wilbur's books a second time uh -huh. Uh -huh. and uh reading wilbur's books at that time meant something different to me right um for for several reasons one going deeply into Krishnamurti's work while I, I really appreciated 
you know, the intensity of, of focusing inwardly on mm -hmm. movements of consciousness and thought and trying to understand how thought arises and how mm -hmm. impulse and, and how conditioning functions, you know, all of that. I began to be hungry for the narratives mm. of, of, of human history. And because Krishnamurti was very, very strongly against don't read any of the old past books and try to like get stuff from it. Mm. Just be fresh, you know? Okay. And it was useful for me, but I began to think that's actually a dialogue of, 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 you know, of, of long human thought and reflection mm. that has something of value in it. Beautiful. And, you know, I, I didn't want to just like right. arrogantly right. cut myself off from that dialogue. Right. Right? right. And so that when I came back to the United States and I saw, uh, Ken Wilber books again, I, I, I had felt this need to integrate, you know, um, Western thought and some of my, you know, early studies in mm -hmm. um, Western science and, and mythology and things like that mm -hmm. with all of that Eastern contemplative experience I'd gotten over a few years. Mm -hmm. I wanted to figure out how do these things go together, okay. right? Um, mm -hmm. These, mm -hmm. all of these aspects of my life are meaningful and enriching Right. And those worlds are often not bridged. Mm. And I found Wilbur was attempting that. Certainly. He's, he's in that place. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I thought that was really um, what I wanted was not necessarily to follow Wilbur or anything, but to, to engage in that kind of cross-cultural um, mediation, bridge-making mm. Um, coherence building. Um, and so those were those first impulses. And I, I began to then value Wilbur's charts and maps and okay. stages and all of that, because I could see now, right. Having been through those different um, experiences where they can, where they can fit, where they fit. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you had sort of that intellectual schema, you had unbelievable and rich experiences with the contemplative world. And then we're now building the narrative East and West as well. And you find uh, Wilbur along those lines. You also got at some point interested in Roy Boschkar, or at least you had some uh, connection. Was it, uh, you know, was that, were you pretty much located in the integral community? Uh, when, and when did that happen? And you, you they've also branched out in all sorts of meta, I know. <laughs> right, right. I went to, you know, after living for a, a number of years in Virginia. Um, Where, by the way, did you live in Virginia, just out of curiosity? In Charlottesville. Oh, okay. So I'm 30 minutes away from there. <laughs> awesome. That's great. <laughs> My daughter yeah. went to the University of Virginia, lives there now. So, and uh, yeah, we're very familiar with the Charlottesville world. I used to go to UVA. Sometimes I took some classes there. I have some people who friends who were, you know, doing their PhDs there. <laughs> and uh, I eventually, um, I had been in a rock band years ago. Uh, I always like to say this part because it's like the brushing with fame, but it was a rock band with Billy Bob Thornton's brother. Oh, okay. And um, huh. after I had been in, you know, Virginia for a while, I recalled something our sound engineer had said, um, which was that uh, uh, there was a school in California um, that that teaches, you know, kind of holistic forms of psychology that bring East and West together. Mm. And uh, so I I remembered that. And mm -hmm. at the time when I was in playing music, I wasn't interested in that at all. Okay. Um, but now it suddenly seemed like it might be something I want to pursue. So you know, I had finished my 
undergraduate. And then I, I took off to California and uh, uh, went to that school. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was in the context of that school that we went deeper into Ken Wilber's work. They, they also used Ken Wilber's work in some of the courses. And right. we sent the school every year, sent a cohort of students over to Ken Wilber's house mm. um, to, you know, spend a, a weekend with him and okay. ask questions. And, and right, right, I, right. So we did that. And uh, huh. he introduced at that time that they were just about to launch this media project called Integral Naked. And so I was one of the first oh. people to sign up for that all right and that that got me into the integral world more concretely then right right um and that's where we'll you know layman talked about where we first met Uh i was there Uh as a character named balder and he was Uh there as a character named iconostocles and we both (laughs) perfect (laughs) you know balder and iconostocles yeah yeah so (laughs) we met each other that way and uh uh, eventually you know I began interested in, in diving deeper into what Wilbur was talking about because I could both see the strengths of what he was doing. And also he's taking some shortcuts and some things don't make sense. And mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. so I started a forum called integral post-metaphysical spirituality, mm. which um, Layman also told you about that he joined yeah, later. And, right, and right. we also hit it off mm-hmm. on a number of uh, topics together. Uh, but it was that inquiry that actually turned into me into for me a kind of self-generated um phd course in philosophy Uh, and that there were about four of us who were core members layman was part of that and mm -hmm, and others mm -hmm. we got really deeply interested in understanding what is post metaphysics what's Mm -hmm. the whole philosophical background Mm -hmm. what's the new emerging you know speculative realism and on you know object-oriented ontology and so Heideggerian thought and Whiteheadian and and Badu and and you know so all of those things I began with a, a group of people we just dove into that for mm-hmm. probably eight six maybe six to eight years of just wow. reading mm-hmm. um, deeply and writing and, and con- conversing with each other around those things um, and it was in that context that I discovered. Um, Roy Boscar's work, okay. um, especially, you, you know, references from the object-oriented ontologists and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Levy Bryant often talks about, you know, Boscar. And, right, um, right. So I wanted to know what is going on with speculative realism. Uh-huh. I mean, uh, not speculative, critical realism, critical with realism. his critical realism. Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it, it eventually, you know, Sean Hargens, Espion Hargens also mm-hmm. was getting into that and, and uh, beginning to organize some dialogues with, um, with Bhaskar, um, right. some of which I was able to attend. Right. I saw um, that you were included in some of the early, I, I, there was a meta theory in the 21st century book. And I happened to see your name as listed as one of the, you know, and when they were doing the conferences together, I think in terms of the integral uh, critical realists, you know, the early crit stuff, C-R-I-T, critical realism, uh, integral theory. I don't know the history very much, but there was a series of conferences, right, uh, from like 2011 to 2014 or something like that. Um, exactly, yeah. And I think Zach Stein was part of yep. those, um, mm-hmm. and Benita Roy and a number of people. Yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't write in this new meta space. <laughs> that seems to be a you know sort of original bubble over there. <laughs> I think it was. I think there was a lot of synergizing that happened around that that um, has been fruitful for all of us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, yeah so, so then go ahead. Yeah, sorry, it's a rich story. Um, yeah, no, I, I think that I, I came to a good stopping place if you, yeah, whatever you like to talk about here. Well, I guess then you, uh, yeah, let's now, so we'll fast forward now, and now all of a sudden there's this new, to me, this is a new meta space emerging, right? Uh, and, and certainly the Bashkar uh, Wilbur is a good indication of that. And I like to think of my own little mini trajectory in relationship to that, you know, sort of, I was alone doing, <laughs> doing my little thing in the middle of the academy, which is interesting, you know, right, right. sort of smack dab in the middle of the academy. I'm doing this, I'm talking to all these people and then individually I'm having all the synergy, but there's just the academy has no interest in, you know, what is this or how it would actually organize around itself. Uh, and then to be sort of launched out, you know, complicated ways, whatever, but all of a sudden my whole, orientation from within the academy to on the fringe. And now I have my own little history of like, when I first encounter Wilbur, um, I sort of come at it from the natural science angle and from a real much more precise, what is psychology angle. Uh, and I'm trying to carve out my space. And in fact, I should have been more aware of Wilbur than I was. Uh, and then I have this initial reaction. Oh, that guy's, you know, he's not a real academic. <laughs> right. You know, that's, that's the arrogant whatever inside the blue church. And now that I'm barely a real academic anymore, you know, with cartoons and everything, um, <laughs> you know, it's like all of a sudden I'm a, I'm a much better appreciation for what Wilbur is trying to do. And I've really, um, and then especially uh, the intersection of Roy Bashkar's critical realism and ontology and epistemological fallacy critique of science coupled with Wilbur framing the quadrants you know, and in epistemological terms, um, that synergy, which I discovered, you know, that book and talking to Zach Stein, uh, it's just really a powerful and beautiful synergy. Uh, and it interacts with my, or intersects with my work in a, a particular way. So that brings our journeys then uh, over the last, uh, you know, climbing up sort of meta mountain, as it were, yeah. you know, made a Mount Sophia on one side and a tree of knowledge and elephant sun gods <laughs> on the, and gardens on the other. And you and I, boom, uh, you know, intersect. Um, so I'm a couple of things I'm really curious and then I'll let you just, so I'm really curious about grammatology, your integral grammatology, <clears throat> the, the, the space of integral stage um, and sacred naturalism. Those are, those are lovely things that I would love to talk uh, about. Um, and I'll throw those out there and see if uh, you want to pick up one of those threads at this juncture or some tapestry combination. Sure, sure. I think one thread I want to pick up kind of like leading to that is uh, in my own work, trying to integrate my experience from the past uh, in, in Asia, especially, and, and trying out different, especially religious traditions, none of which totally fit, but I experienced them in a way that was beneficial for me. Yep. Um, but I was deeply interested in how do you, you know, bring together different religious perspectives in a way that can promote peace among these different traditions mm. and also um, lead to, you know, uh, synergies that are, are growth producing for, you know, the multiple traditions. Cause I, mm -hmm. I could mm -hmm. see that in some of my own heroes and I could see that in myself mm -hmm. that there'd been this mutual enrichment, but there weren't theologically many frames that allowed for that holding together. Right. And 
I wasn't, of course, comfortable with the exclusivism of traditionalism, um, <laughs> the inclusivism of modernism. I didn't really like because usually it just chose one position, yep. whether it was the scientific or the Christian or whatever. <laughs> that was the top one and then tried to fold everyone into that. Right. Um, pluralism was better, but it was not satisfying because it basically was just, uh, mm -hmm. you know, too relativistic. Too chaotic. Um, yep. mm -hmm. So exploring that led me to, in my own thinking, towards trying to articulate, uh, you know, a integral pluralism. Mm. And so that was the field where I first started exploring just what are the, what's the shape of an integral pluralism yep. in terms of interfacing multiple paradigms and, and worldviews. And then, you know, when, when uh, especially Sean began looking at uh, critical realism and mm -hmm. complex thought uh -huh. in relationship to integral theory and trying to articulate um, how those can go together. You saw in one of my papers, I also tried my own hand at, at that. Yep. Um, and so that was, you know, the building of a one kind of meta space mm -hmm. um, was mm -hmm. the dialogue emerging among the, the followers of Moran and uh, right. Bhaskar and Wilbur. Okay. Um, but then, more recently, we're seeing similar synergies happening between and among metamodernists, Game mm -hmm. B, Utah community, um, mm -hmm. integral deep web, synthiest, you know, um, and integral people. Yep. Um, so it's just like these, this flowering where I think multiple communities are, are recognizing each other across different, you know, discourse boundaries. And saying, hey, hey, you know, <laughs> we're brothers, we're sisters, you know. That's um, right. That's and right. so that's been a deep interest is to, you know, for me, for the integral stage, for, for Layman and I, is, is we want that to be a place that can allow for that meeting mm. and mutual reflection right. to be amplified and, uh, and, and to just to continue to, to flourish however it's going to. Beautiful. Yeah, I really like, in fact, that's what I, in 2011, that's what I, the term integral pluralism is the, what I use in the Unified Theory book to characterize the sensibility. So that's exact. And then I found, I think it was Mitchell in at least some ac academic description of, of a way of understanding biology, I believe, if memory serves, uh, identified that um, terminology, that dialectic um, as a particular frame. And then so I happened to see him use that bit or her. Um, but anyway, so that's super cool, you know, and I also was like, uh, you know, as a post postmodern grand meta narrative, you know, post, you know, meta modern integral pluralism. Um, and speaking for myself as, as that synergy, not super connected with all of these things, it's just is a, almost a um, the synchronicity of the emerging cultural sensibilities and how they happen, you know, in line with one another. And I think it's a beautiful, you know, seeding growing thing. And now this interconnection between uh, these various domains and then the integral stage really does look like a, a special hub in relationship to making connections in the integral plural metamodern space. Uh, I hope so. Yeah. Thank you for affirming that. Cause that's definitely, you know, uh, an aim or a mission where we'll, we're still very small, um, but mm -hmm. definitely we, as Layman mentioned, we've, been fortunate enough to talk to very many different kinds of people. And it's been, you know, super enriching and exciting. I actually have uh, a series 
coming up on Integral Life that I'm going to be doing together with Rob Smith and mm. uh, with Paul Marshall. Mm -hmm. um, oh, okay. You know, well, well. <laughs> yeah, looking at uh, basically uh, the intersection of critical realism and integral theory. Mm. Um, so Rob says he wants to try to bring some content to the Integral Life website that uh, isn't only so Wilbur-focused, but that mm -hmm. looks at Mm -hmm. what's emerging a little bit more broadly in the, the, the meta communities. Um, for, for my integral um, grammatology, I know you and I have had several uh, talks about it. So I'll try to say something that's not redundant to that. Okay, um, great, great. But yeah, for uh, in the context of the integral post-metaphysical spirituality forum, where we were doing kind of that deep dive into right, right. Um, mm -hmm. you know, multiple lineages of thought, I began to notice uh, just different fundamental orientations in different camps mm. of, of thinkers, especially mm -hmm. in object-oriented ontology and speculative mm -hmm. realism and, and mm -hmm. some surrounding communities um, where they, they seem to focus more on structure or on process or things mm. like that. And I noticed there was like either a verbal emphasis or a nounal emphasis mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I began to think, are there other emphases? Are there other paths which focus on other parts of speech yep. and other, other essential metaphysical constituents or you know, foundations yep. for, for how you put together a worldview? And I began to just read around. Um, I, I came across fairly soon in that reaching around and, and searching uh, Latour, talking about prepositions. Okay. And uh, Latour was especially drawing that from a French philosopher named Soriau mm -hmm. and also from Michel Serre, mm -hmm. um, both of whom talked about prepositions to some extent. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, they held them in a different way. Um, they, they regarded them as a, a kind of metaphysical departure mm -hmm. from antiquity, right. uh, which, which usually looked for substances, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, essences, substances, um, right. structures, or processes. Mm -hmm. And with prepositions, there was a move away from that towards uh, looking at the interstitial <laughs> um, spa generative Position spaces. in relation. Mm -hmm. Right, mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. And Latour was using prepositions to build his own, uh, one of his own models, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, which he was talking about uh, as modes of existence and, mm -hmm. and beginning to mm -hmm. see how you can interrelate different modes of existence. So yep. uh, that was an in interesting thread for me. I began to look around, are there adjectival, are there adverbial approaches? And I found them. Um, and I knew Wilbur, of course, focused on pronouns mm -hmm. um, with uh, I, the we, the it, and the its. So that just like, it looked to me that there are you know, fundamental grammatical philosophies that are really deeply informing different philosophical traditions. Um, and, you know, Wilbur's integral impulse was looking around at different schools of psychology and meditation, usually which dismissed each other. And he wanted I to figure out about that. <laughs> yeah, right? right. And how do you make them um, more coherent and, and complementary to each other rather than, you know, exclusive alternatives? And so I felt that same impulse with these different philosophical traditions I was exploring. And I found this grammatical 
kind of lensing um, allowed for a, a different kind of facilitation of worldviews and, and metaphysical approaches um, that, you know, our forum was dedicated to post-metaphysics, but in one sense, it was a move that I would call meta-metaphysical, you know, mm -hmm. you're, 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 mm -hmm. you're taking a meta-perspective to metaphysics to understand. And, you know, there's a, an inactive, uh, you know, onto-epistemology involved in that, this inactive where you recognize that in, in holding this frame, it allows you to see something, but in that seeing, it actually changes you and how you're holding. And there's this loop yep. that happens, generative participatory loop. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, that became kind of what I wanted to explore as onto-choreography, you know, this, this, this uh, circulating through right. Um, right. metaphysical lenses in a playful generative way. Um, yeah. Yeah. So let's see, uh, I, I, let's fill some of this in from my angle. This I just, I think is beautiful and it's brilliant and you know, it's very, very influential. Um, and, and it's influential on a couple of different intersecting areas. So, uh, if I, I'll share a little bit about, and you know, a little bit of this history, but just for people that are listening. Okay. Um, and, so one of the things that I got super interested in is the concept of behavior, okay? Um, because then uh, both in terms of breaking it off in relationship to, one of the things that I realized is that behavior isn't so much a, a topic in psychology, but really behavior is an epistemological framing that psychologists engage in to gain access to the mind, okay? So you, we, have, we wanna study the mind, but the scientific perspective is such that you can't really gain direct access to the mind, or at least there's one way of saying that if we take a third person exterior epistemology, we can't see the first person dimension of the mental. And so we then have to study it indirectly. And if science is going to have this uh, capacity, then we'd get mind and behavior really broke off so that the behavior is accessible to the scientists to then infer what the mind is, mm -hmm. okay? Now, why is this, this is directly related to your grammatology, but I need a little backdrop for people to see this. So then I make, uh, you know, and then one of the insights that I make, which other people have made, but has not gotten the attention, is that actually what's happening is science is applying its general epistemology. What's evolving is applying a general epistemology to the mental. What does that mean? The general epistemology is behavior, hmm. okay? And, and what I then see is that actually science in general is about behavior, like the fundamental concept in science is behavior. Mm -hmm. um, and the metaphysics of behavior as an observer, so the, you observe the science, you assign it to you, position observer, then to observe objects, fields, and change. Okay. Um, and, and this was influential for me for a couple of different reasons because I had already, um, one of my insights was, well, the problem of language and propositional speech because it's a problem of justification, okay? And the symbolic syntactical structure at the very base is nouns. We tag what is, okay? And then we tag as they change in verbs, mm -hmm. okay? This is, and these are some of the fundamental essence of uh, speech terms. Nouns and verbs are very foundational, all right? So now I'll take nouns and verbs and we'll upgrade this and also then say, well, actually what scientists are doing is they're observing objects and then not object, which is the field, and then over change, and then they'll make some observation in relationship to it. Okay? Mm -hmm. 
So then you have the, what I always see, the grammar of behaviors, the noun and the verb being observed. Right. Um, and the grammar then structures the relationship between the perspective, the participation with the objective, and the intersubjective propositional language system. Okay? So now grammar, just so folks are aware, grammar now is going to cut across the phenomenological structure, the interpropositional language, the shared intersubjective language, and the way in which it transacts and participates in the objective. Mm -hmm. All right? So when you talk about meta-metaphysics, the idea that we would take grammatical lensing through the various sense-making structures is, in my opinion, unbelievably brilliant because what it does is it affords you then a very, very abstract doorway into the way relations are construed, mm -hmm. okay? Um, and that's why uh, meta-metaphysical integral grammatology actually makes brilliant, perfect sense. I mean, it's just sort of like you can come into the fundamental architectures of knowing and enter through, this gets in what I know what uh, Lehman does in terms of adjacency, get through certain kinds of deep structures that actually form the glue of what people are looking through. But now you can get off of and then look at that and see it with a level of coherence um, that you wouldn't have seen before. And, and thank you for that, because that's what happened to me as I internalized your position. All of a sudden, I was gaining perspective on stuff that I was looking through before what wasn't looking at. And then when you get that, that's a meta shift. And that's what I got out of your grammatology. And it's absolutely brilliant. I, I really appreciated how you um, described that process. Um, I know we had talked a little bit before about, you know, some of, of the, the, impact on your thinking and what you were, were seeing. But I really found that that was what you just said now was just so beautifully and clearly and exquisitely expressed. Um, and it, you know, it also helps me take an object back on looking at, at that and, and see it in a different way too. Um, so I really appreciate that. Great. Um, uh, so one more thread on this, just so that, because that's what I really believe there's a hyper conversation hooking up here. So I mentioned nouns and verbs. Okay, so the other thread is me, John, and you. Now, John Verveke. So the, another way, so well, there's nouns and verbs. Well, John then brings a particular grammatical lens around adverbs and adjectives, okay? And those that watch the entangling world not know this, but basically your adverbial qualia and consciousness is the framing, the top-down framing of the witness function. So this, is the, this does the moving around of the frame. And then the adjectival qualia are the actual properties that one experiences, okay? Uh, so this is like if you experience red or you experience the taste of grape soda or whatever it is, uh, that's on the screen. And then the adjectival is framing the screen. So there's another grammatical uh, organization. So we have nouns, verbs that I was, adjectives, adver adverbial. And then John and I were trying to piece together, okay, uh, the, where does this actually come from? Because, it, because you need a lot of cognitive architecture to get to what would be like, this is like a global neuronal workspace model, okay, in, in sort of more cognitive neuroscience kinds of language. But, but actually, that requires a lot of architecture that may, that I think presupposes or overshoots early forms of sentience, okay. Uh, which I believe are sort of these embodied flashes uh, that connect uh, sort of flashes of pleasure and pain. Okay? Uh, 
Right? And I believe that actually what where we get quality out of are the flashes of pleasure and pain. This is consistent like Antonio Damasio and Mark Solomons is coming out with this ar argument. Um, and it's basically a flash to approach and avoid. Right? Uh, and that's, so I built that for a while. And John was like, well, yes, that's the early care indicator of recursive relevance realization. And it may emerge prior to the architecture of the adverbial adjectival consciousness. And then, well, where does that come from? Well, if, we're, if the system can send out a signal approach or void that's embodied, it's positioning itself in relation toward and away. Okay? Mm. And then we were like, well, that's, what is that? Well, let's call it valence qualia. We have a dialogos moment where it's like, okay, it's not um, you know, adverbial or adjectival, but it's sort of this precursor that is valence qualia. Well, we synced up on that about, I don't know, four weeks before I came across your preposition. Okay. And that, and then what is it? What is toward and away? <laughs> okay. It's actually the signal of the relationship between the animal and the environment. You know, it's just a total. So even beneath the adverbial, adjectival, and noun verbal propositional, certainly beneath it all is a prepositional jolt. Okay. And so this is that this goes into the bottom. So we meta metaphysics. Now this is like the embodiment. You follow that down and you see that prepositional relation. So both of those lines of thought um, became apparent to me in, in relationship to as I read Mount Sophia or Sophia Speaks. Um, and it just it just is really, really uh, again, I'll just say thank you for it because it really is a synergistic, holistic picture. Uh, that is very, very, I'm a big coherentist. I always love that stuff. And when I find somebody that sees something like that and helps me piece it together at a meta level, it's just a, a joyous thing. Yeah. When I was watching the Untangling the World Knot series and I heard you guys getting into valence qualia, I was just getting so excited. I was like, <laughs> they're talking about that. You know, um, I just, I, I really, I felt that you had, entered that space that has been so deeply interesting to me too. Um, and you know, it, when you, when you feel others resonating in that space, it's just, I don't know, I get a rush from it. You know, it's totally. like, that's, it's that's, church, that's right? Dia, Dia Logo <laughs> spirit, right? You know, uh, actually that's a great line. Cause actually I want, I don't, I don't, uh, in terms of, uh, yes, this is the revitalization. So there's a real movement here. Okay, I mean, this, this we lead into the hyper conversation um, and the meaning crisis, the mental health crisis. I, I'll, I'll see what you think of this. I just was doing supervision with somebody. Okay, um, and and they're seeing college students. Okay, and the guy comes in, you know, and she's like, "Well, well I have a really nice family and childhood, but I'm just dead inside. You know, there's just no meaning." There's no engagement, I'm checking off boxes. And we, in the college student, student world, we see this a lot these days, okay? Um, and I was just talking to my supervisor about, well, what do we do? Like, where is our culture in relationship to in, in growing the soul and spirit, you know? Mm -hmm. what, what are we doing that feeds that? Um, I'll, I'll use Zach Stein's term, like we're cultivating so much skill development out here, but where is the ensoulment and the transcendent spiritual development, you know? Um, and that to me is, uh, you know, I believe that one of our great tasks in the 21st century is to figure out how to reboot the meaning 
into and, and mental health, you know, correlates of that dynamic and, and bring a sacredness to the world to infuse uh, a sacredness to the world. So um, I, what are your thoughts about what you're seeing, what you hope for, what your role is in this space and, and doing, uh, doing things in that uh, ballpark? Yeah, it's deeply interesting to me. And, um, you know, you mentioned before the, the sacred naturalism, yes. um, which is definitely uh, a thread that's one that I want to continue to follow um, mm -hmm. and, and unfold. We, we did a series on that, which I, I know you shared with your. I shared with um, the list. I strongly recommend it. It's a, it's a series of what six or so conversations. Uh, you introduce it. Layman starts it off. There are a wide variety of interesting perspectives that are, um, you know, different flavors of sacred naturalism as it bubbles up to the surface. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, have you ever heard of, uh, the ecological philosopher named Henrik Skolomowski. I have not. No. He, I, 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 I recommend him with a, some qualification and that <laughs> all of his thought is not super strong, mm -hmm. um, but some of it is really consonant with, mm -hmm. I think, some of these emerging movements. And okay. back in, I think it was, uh, yeah, late 70s, early 80s, mm -hmm he wrote a book called the participatory mind huh. and he was looking at, you know, uh, yeah, the, the ontic epistemic loops, mm. um, that, that lead to basically he sees evolution as the unfolding of sensitivities okay. of, of modes of detection of, okay. of, mm. of, of the universe of itself. Mm. Um, and that evolution kind of tracks uh, deepening ways that the universe can become sensitive to itself mm. and, and, and participate with itself um, at deeper layers and deeper levels. Um, so, and it's ecologically framed. And one of the mm -hmm. things that he, he talks about, which I think is interesting also in terms of kind of the meaning crisis mm -hmm. and, um, and, and where we are, mm -hmm. um, he talks about uh, different ages that we've been in, you know, mm. um, thinking about Cynthiaism and, and, and uh, several different threads. But one of them, he says that, you know, the traditional in the West, the traditional frame he calls Theos. Okay. And then um, we move into with the enlightenment, we move into what he calls Mechanos okay. and beginning to see the world through the metaphor of the machine. Mm -hmm. Um. And now he believes we're, we're moving into what he would call the participatory uh, age, mm. but we're not there yet in terms yep. of it consolidating. And so he draws this map of like these plateaus mm -hmm. with that, that then drop into a big squiggly mess <laughs> before they reach up and uh, achieve another plateau. Yep. And so he feels that we're in that period right now where yeah. mechanos is breaking down. Right. Um, and, he believes, you know, postmodern and integrative um, insights are going to allow us to eventually uh, develop a much more ecologically sensitive and grounded uh, philosophy um, that that is centered on the notion of levels of sensitivity and participation with the cosmos. Beautiful. Um, 
And so, yeah, I, I relate to that, you know, um, as, as a beautiful vision, that's very consonant with some of my own impulses, you know, and I think what, what, um, you talk is about, um, and what some, several of our other projects are about is, I don't know, like Brian swim, um, <laughs> with his whole work with the new sure. universe story. Yep. One of the things that he, one of his phrases is can science be something that is soul shaping and soul shaking. Um, and I think we are at that point where if we really deeply contemplate what we are seeing about the world um, and really begin to take to heart um, the lessons that, that science is giving us, I, I, there's good caution not to turn science into a religion. It'll mess it up, you know, all of that. Right. But it can, I think, you know, properly digested, feed new sensibilities, new ways of relating to to life and universe and evolution um, as as fragile and precious and sacred um, and something worth learning to dance with and participate with much more deeply. Beautiful. That is, a, I mean, that's the, uh, so many different wonderful threads there. Um, I mean, the We'll start with the basic structure of the Utah project. I mean, it's you know the the argument fundamentally is is that there's a big confusing vacuum that can be coherently filled in between the science of human psychology on the one hand and this psycho the humanistic psychotherapeutic enterprise of adaptive fulfillment on the other. I mean, there's that, and that um, you know I had the naive in retrospect naive assumption that those things should go together. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, and then I had to learn that actually they really can't go together in the current structure of the modern, modern scientific um, intellectual architecture. You either drop into some sort of incoherent physical reductionism or you then expand into some incoherent big picture view. I mean, that, mm -hmm. that is those are your basic options. Uh, and the system does a. Uh, since the experts don't know how to translate that, how the hell could the, how the, hell could the society translate it? Right. I mean, you know, if the, if the best minds can't freaking translate her, then Joe on the street can't translate her. You know? um, but there is now a translation that's happening. And certainly John's uh, climbing up, you know, philosophy and cognitive science mountain uh, on the one hand. And then, you know, the, the Utah really does say, hey, um, there is a real clear and obvious problem thing called the science of psychology. And they tried to carve science and behavior and mind up in particular ways. And everybody agrees that it makes no sense. <laughs> I mean, right. Scholarship agrees that really it's just, well, it's just really the method. And then you build it and then we'll, but they, you know, and it's like, well, there can be made sense of. And when you do, you realize that things like soul and spirit are essential categories that, that can be defined in the context of a naturalistic scientific ontology. Mm -hmm. you know? They're not only a physicalist reductionist would, we try to eliminate those types of things. And we absolutely, uh, it's silly. You just go back to Aristotle's scales of freaking nature. I mean, there is a, you know, it's like a Schumacher, there's mineral matter, you know, that's the stand. Underneath that, there's energy now, we know that. And then, you know, there's foundational, what I would call implicate order stuff underneath matter that allows mm -hmm. a quantum mechanical understanding of energy information. Then you get the normal size material world, you know, that we're in, that's dead in and of itself. Or, I mean, it's like, you know, it's complicated at the level of just matter. And then this is the other point I wanted to make, which 
So I'll go, there's another story here, but Bruce knows the story. He sends me this yin yang symbol after our conversation about iQuad, which we never got to the punchline of. But <laughs> trust I me, want it all comes still. back to one. I want you still, yes. <laughs> it's a punchline. Anyway, yeah, poor Bruce had to go through two and a half hours and we never got to a punchline, but he coped. He was a good sport. Um, <laughs> but but anyway, so afterwards we're talking in, you know, the I, the, the backstory of iQuad, you know, I have this coin. I'm just telling, listening to this for the listeners. Um, there's this really, really layered relationship between mathematical operators as knowers and this structure of mathematical uh, operations and how they apply to physics and the nature of the physical world and how you can collapse those through a particular set and see a, a sort of a structure of coherence that actually contains our mathematical physical insights in a new way. Um, and so Bruce then sends me this super cool yin yang picture that I hadn't seen. Okay. And uh, on one side is ontology that's like in the black and then the white circle there is like epistemic. And then the other side is epistemology and then ontic, okay? And so, so the, the story here uh, for folks that are, you know, in terms of following, so I get trained as a psychological scientist, all right? And Roy Bashkar is completely correct. <laughs> psychological science in particular commits the ep epistemological epistemic fallacy, okay? And what does that mean? Basically, psychological science is, well, how do you know? Do you know based on folk psychology and intuition, or do you know based on empirical epistemology forged in the modern scientific revolution? This is the good way to know, and this is the bad way to know, and good knowledge is scientific. That's why there's an entire thing called clinical science in psychology, and basically all of your knowledge should be grounded in empirical science. That's the whole justification, okay? So as if now, and Roy Bashkar, if you know Roy Bashkar at all, as if the way in which you know now assures that what you know is valid, regardless of what you say to be real, i.e. ontology. Like, what do you mean by mind and behavior? If you can't answer your ontological references, okay, then you can't claim coherent scientific knowledge, all right? So, and in fact, I went back to my earlier stuff. I have a 2003 paper where I opened the tree of knowledge in theory, theoretical unification of psychology. And I, this, you could see this in history. I start with, well, there's a problem of epistemology, okay? And, my, and now I'd look back at, no, <laughs> it is a problem of ontology, epistemology, and metaphysics, people. <laughs> there's a problem, the whole philosophy is all screwed up. But no, as a scientist, I thought about really philosophy was basically epistemology. So then I split and learned to split ontology off from epistemology and see obviously there's claims about what is real and then there's how we know about them. Okay, that's split one. Split two then is I'm in the conversation with Alexander Bard like late 2018, okay? And I'm using ontology, blah, 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 but the, my language is not clear because I'm not clear whether I'm talking about beliefs about what is real Okay, and how we know about what's real versus what's actually real. Mm -hmm. And Bard's like, Henricus, do you know the difference between the ontic reality and ontology? Okay, and I was like, yeah, kind of, but not really. <laughs> <You know? laughs> All right, so ontology is fundamentally then, of course, the, you can make the case that it's a, how we know about the real, beliefs about the real versus the ontic reality, which is reality itself, if you want to use that term. So then I was like, and in fact, I saw in the tree of knowledge, I was like, oh my God, of course, the life, the matter life mind side, 
okay, is really representing the ontic reality. And physics, biology, psychology, and social sciences are really now the ontology developed by scientific epistemology to map the ontic reality. Right. Okay. So now we have a very clear, now I'm saying, oh my gosh, yes, it's reality and science and the mapping of the two that makes it really unique. And it says how physics maps matter, biology maps uh, the life sciences, and now it should, psychology should map this third dimension, which is animal mind, and then the human sciences should map this fourth dimension, culture person. Okay, fast forward now to this image that, George, that Bruce sends me, which has the epistemic, okay? relative to epistemology. So now we're dividing, right, well, so that's just the process by which you know. Now, epistemology would be the science or the study of how you know. Okay. So then now, this was in the last like four days, people are up to speed. Now we're getting really up to speed, people, <laughs> in terms of history. <laughs> so the other day I was walking after you sent this and I was like, well, where does epistemic like actually fit in the real world? Okay. It's the cognitive process of knowing in the world, all right? Um, and then what I did was like, oh my gosh, maybe when I talk about the different dimensions of complexity, okay? Um, I'm very keen on saying, well, there's different levels of complexity within a dimension, okay? So you go from atoms to molecules, that's a jump within. But then when you go from molecules to cells, that's a jump between, okay? And then life is in between, and then mind, and then culture. And each one of these is really a complexity-building feedback loop that gives rise to an information processing system within and a communication system between. Okay, And that's a complex plane of existence. And there's all these big questions. Well, what is that? And blah, blah. It's, it's sort of biological information processing, biological semiotics, biological cognition, biological epistemics. <laughs> <laughs> Could it be, right? It's the way to sell most stuff. And then if we jump up to mind, then it would be, well, mind really then is being guided by the neurocognitive epistemic process of the nervous system generating knowledge that coordinates its functional awareness and responses. And then you get all the way up into, well, the process by which we know through propositional justification, okay? So now the epistemic division then allowed me to put that in the context of the ontic reality so that I could actually see the knowledge systems that are really, that are generated at the level of life, mind, and culture as a way of describing the ontic epistemic feedback loop, you know? And to bring it back, I know it's a long detour, but to bring it back to your point about the world really is getting, awakening itself up to increasingly deeper, broader, emanating sensitivities emanating capacities to know and to coherently integrate that knowledge and then participate in response to it, you can then see that feedback curvature all the way up the tree of knowledge to the, to the point that brings us to this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, I, what strikes me about that image, um, Joel Morrison is the the creator of that image of the 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 yin yang with the mm -hmm. those four elements and yeah because there's in postmodernism and modernism you know you see different kinds of splits where there's not an equal you know balanced um, or or I think uh, adequate holding of these different things and you know so ontology is epistemic. Yep. You know, people sometimes speak of ontology as if they're talking about the thing itself, but ontology yep. 
with the logos Guilty at the of end that of it. in the past. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Yeah, ontology with the logos at the end means it's epistemic. And, you know, epistemology is, you know, or, or, or the epistemic is actually ontic in that the, you know, the ick at the end of there indicates that it's a real thing and that the epistemic is not only how we know, but the very fact of our knowing that there is this knowing process um, that's, that's part of the architecture of being, right? Um, and, and I think that you talk is what you're describing here is, is a very beautiful way of mapping how that, uh, what are the different layers and, 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 and systems of the epistemic um, as they evolve greater levels of you know, sensitivity and capacity for knowing and detection. Boom, here's to you talking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll turn it into a verb. <laughs> we'll bounce around the grammatology of Utah. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. No, actually, I know. I can sit with that for a little while. That, oh, that's, a, that's some good dialogos right there. That is, uh, that's what that is. I love that. That's a beautiful thing. Me too. Yeah, yeah. really appreciate um, the synergy that I feel, you know, emerging here in terms of different things that we're looking at and, 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 and how they're docking up, you know, it's, it's yeah. very beautiful. Um, are you familiar with, uh, uh, Peter Sloterdijk's book, uh, you must change your life or much I of heard you mention it. Now, remember Bruce, I am hopelessly ignorant about most things in the world. <laughs> oh, not at all. No <laughs> that way. Is, that's our default. Okay. Yeah. That's what, well, actually I should, I should say that I, I, I really think, um, I've, I've said that lit recently because somebody was saying, hey, you don't understand Hegel, you know, on, on the on the bards list. OK. And my reply to him was, I don't understand ninety nine point nine percent of the people in the world. Right. I don't <laughs> I don't under I was listening to this whole story about Islamic scholars. OK. I listened to four of them. I had never heard of a single one. These are the major figures in Islamic mm -hmm tradition. I'd, I couldn't pronounce any of their names. I didn't know anything of what they did. And this is a gigantic tradition of thousands of years, you know, thousand year or whatever, um, of people that, that have richly studied him. I can name one person, right? Mm. You know, I don't think I'm alone in this because, <laughs> I mean, but that's the point is that we, no matter how much we know, we're always just this little drop in the bucket. I don't know anything about Confucian scholarship you know, in that right, right. Know anything about the Hindu world at all. I mean, that's the oldest, you know, is that in Zoroastrianism, Bard start talking Zoroastrianism. So these are gigantic traditions of which I can't say a paragraph about, you know? So that's what I mean in relation. And I, and I'm, and I say that with a fair amount of confidence, I'm relatively learned by normal standards, <laughs> right? But it is also true that it's unbelievably, it's just all inspiring about what's out there and, and we're inevitably ignorant. You know, it's it's on the one part, it's it's a, the fault of our own education systems, but on the other hand, it's just the fault of being human, and we just don't have, we don't, we can't hold it all. You know, there's just sure. no way we can hold it all, right? Definitely. And so I think, you know, what we're I think attempting in these different meta communities is, you know, none of us has to hold it all, but if you know, and what John is doing too with the dialogos, and you know if we can build at least the technologies of, of, you know, dialogue and communication that can allow for us to, you know, enrich each other, 
Um, none of us have to hold it all, but if we find new ways to synergize. Totally. Um, and they could do so much better. I look back at my education. There's no even attempt to offer an architecture that can hold virtually any of it. We don't even hold our own traditions. <laughs> Yet alone create a space where we can hold our own and hold another tradition. I mean, it's right. just unbelievably bad in relationship to providing the kind of necessary architectural knowledge container that would allow people to drink from the various sources that are available. Yeah, I, I hope we can, you know, I think the wonderful work Zach is doing in education and, mm. and what, you know, many in our community, I think, are, are working towards, I'm hoping there can be some kind of upgrades in, in the ways that we, you know, educate ourselves. Uh, Slaughterdyke has a, a approach that he calls, you know, uh, disciplinics, but he's, he's looking at uh, a new education system that would mm -hmm. um, really expose us to many more domains of practice um, across traditions than we currently have. But the reason I brought him up now is, um, and what you were mentioning about maybe the, you know, what the Islamic scholars or what um, Alexander Bard is doing with um, Zoroastrianism, I, I see it also in Slaughterdyke, and that is looking back at our old, and it's in line with the sacred naturalism, actually, is what mm -hmm. I'm wanting to say, okay. is looking back at our old thought systems, whether they're, you know, uh, Catholic theological, um, mm -hmm. which some people like Panikar or Slaughterdyke are doing, mm -hmm. um, or Graham Harmon looking back to some old Islamic ideas, mm -hmm. um, Bard looking back to uh, Zoroastrianism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If we can, um, you know, look back into these traditions and not just throw it out because it's metaphysical, mm -hmm. but to appreciate um, kind of the epistemic systems that emerge there for certain ways of knowing and interfacing with reality mm. that, that enfold in whole architectures of thought Right. Not just, you know, uh, outmoded, you know, primitive maps of reality, but there are actually architectures of thought there right. that we can bring them forward in a way that can inform how we relate to the natural world, how we relate mm. to therapeutic, um, you know, exchanges. Um, for instance, Slaughterdyke is using old models of the Trinity to inform how we can understand the the, the patient or, or the client and therapist relation. Hmm. Um, so hmm. there's so much there that I think we can still see uh, and draw from and learn from in these ancient traditions totally. that don't have to be held in a way uh, that, that, you know, or don't have to be rejected because they're religious right. um, because there's so much that they can teach us about how we can know and relate and be with each other. And, and, and the whole, beautiful kaleidoscopic play of epistemics, <laughs> you could say. Totally. Yeah. I'm reminded of, um, actually, it was because of a conversation that you and Lehman had on Integral Stage with Mark Edwards. I reached out to Mark Edwards uh, and who had gotten them um, enlightened uh, by some of the Aboriginal traditions in Australia mm -hmm. uh, and became you know, actually passionately convinced <laughs> that the epistemics, if you want to use that term, or the way of being in nature and in relationship to each other was fundamentally more advanced and sophisticated um, 
than we have any appreciation for. In fact, more advanced and sophisticated in many ways than we are, mm -hmm. <laughs> you would argue. Um, and so rediscovering that kind of knowledge and, and in terms of sacred naturalism, uh, I think one of the things that we are most impoverished around uh, is the fact that um, we don't know how to be with the living nature. We do not mm -hmm. know, we don't know how to, you know, we've built our cocoons of technology around us and we have separated and jumped ourselves above uh, or really distorted and alienated from probably uh, nature. And that would be a sensibility that would have inevitably uh, just an enormous amount to teach us in relation. I, I, yeah, I agree with that. And, and uh, Tyson Yunkaporta is, a, you mm -hmm. know, someone who's been appearing and yes. I think, mm -hmm. you know, really showing up as an important voice for that. Um, Amen. And there was a recent book I came across too called Cannibal Metaphysics. Mm. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's actually, I think it's Cannibal Metaphysics or Cannibal Ontology, but it, it's one of those, but it's actually, you know, um, it's also showing just how we, that there are deeply sophisticated ways that ontology and epistemology are held um, by even, you know, tribal traditions that we would want to just write off from a right. you know, modern prejudice position that actually have so much richness there and so much to teach us. Totally. And that's, uh, I interviewed her and, uh, she, you know, I think you talked with her also, Lenny Rachel Anderson's, uh, I really like her short book on metamodernity. And I really, mm -hmm. I find that to be, if I, if somebody were to ask me, what is the, the metamodern sensibility? I use her formulation. Um, which basically looks at the emergence of cultural conscious codes or sensibilities through the oral indigenous, uh, through the traditional formal, uh, through the modern and the postmodern, uh, basically identifies the capacity for relationality and nurture in nature uh, initially, and then the development of identity across heritage and religion, tradition, nation, national identity that lives in a civilization. Um, you know, it's Bronze Age and Axial Age sensibilities and capacity for refined thought and writing. And then you get into the modern science, uh, liberal democracy, you know, capitalist enlightenment, mm. um, hopefully gets reined in some. Then the postmodern critique of caring about the uh, disenfranchised, caring about nature and fundamentally recognizing that there's some overshoot in the arrogance of the modern empirical natural scientific view. Um, all of that is sensibility that I think we can embrace in the 21st century. Um, and I think the kind of uh, ecologically informed sensibility that would be a participatory engagement across these different domains uh, is what we need if we're going to uh, say revitalize our soul and spirit and maintain a, a sustainable way of being in the world. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you know, um, Lehman mentioned to you that he and I are, are thinking about writing uh, actually not thinking about we're going to we're, we're starting work on writing a book on his metaphysics of adjacency and my mm. grammatology but i mentioned that now to say that you know in in from a comment in a e recent email from you i also would love to collaborate with you and possibly layman or others on either an anthology or just a, te a text on the sacred naturalism you know informed <laughs> by you talk and informed by some of these other approaches um i think that would be just really wonderful. That'd be great. I would super welcome that. And uh, and really, as we begin maybe to bring this to a, a bit of a close, I would really like to hear your, uh, when you look out at the horizon of the future, 
uh, and see where, what do you see happening? Where does, where's your heart? Are you optimistic, pessimistic? What do you wish or hope or are trying to contribute to happening? What are you, what are you seeing in that regard as, as we, you know, sort of consolidate this really beautiful conversation and then sort of at least look out at the horizon and, and where we are and where we might go. I sometimes look around and, and think that, you know, for all my growing up, imagining myself being in the future, being in the futuristic 2020s, I never imagined it would look like this. <laughs> um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, there are some really wonderful things happening that I, I'm, I'm excited about. Um, I think what's happening with pandemic and some of the, um, the fracturing of our information ecology and, and um, some of the regressive movements, you know, that are happening culturally, um, they're hard to take in and digest to some degree, you know, so they do okay. shake some of my early naivety. And I, I don't know if we're going to respond to the ecological challenges that we have in time to forestall or, or prevent some of the things that, that may happen. Um, I definitely have, you know, uh, some, you know, friends in this community who are doing what they call, you know, post doom, um, thinking right. and prepping yeah. that, you know, they're imagining that we're going to probably see some significant civilizational collapses. Mm -hmm. And then what do we do after that? Mm -hmm. Um, I hope that's not in store for us. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think it's, I'm, I'm happy I'm married to someone who grew up in rural Nepal and uh, would know how to survive um, if, if necessary. <laughs> right. I've already written an apology to my kids that I was like, I became an academic professor and sorry if this goes bad. <laughs> we will not be living off the land or at least we'll be the first to, that's for sure. Okay. I, I have no idea what I would do. Um, but, you know, for me, what I do see hopeful and what I'm working for and aiming for is a, a lot of what we just talked about here, which is that, you know, there is so much uh, possible for us in, you know, this kind of new meta space and, and the kind of cosmopolitanism that I think um, is showing itself there. Uh, and, you know, my own sensibility of, of, of each of us as a wild knot of, of, of relations that, that reaches out, you know, to so many different currents, um, ecological, social, and, and cultural yes. in the world. Um, I want to see us flower in a way that, that, you know, can foster that braiding, you know, that can, that can lead to, you know, the growing of multiple generative cultural enclosures um, that allows us to, to live in the world differently. And I, I think, you know, what I feel in this syncing up that I'm excited about is the, 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 the threads coming together to form new cultural generative enclosures yes. um, right. that, that I, I really feel I can be behind and excited about. Um, and since I've been homeless before and I have a wife who's, you know, grew up in, in rural Nepal, um, I have, the hope that I can survive if it all goes down. Right. Um, but if it doesn't, you know, I want to see us using technology um, 
to promote new forms of, of communication, new forms of contemplative practice using VR to train our participatory sensibilities. Mm -hmm. There's so much that we can do, um, uh, you know, with, with, you know, with the fifth joint point and, and what possibly could be coming. Um, I think, you know, it just feels to me that, you know, we're prepping for something that is a new mode of being that I, that I am excited about and, and hopeful for. Beautiful. Well, that's wonderful. Yes, that is. And uh, as I find so often, uh, there's such deep resonance with where I am in looking out on the horizon myself. Uh, you know, I do feel uh, that we're sort of on the edge of heaven and hell um, mm -hmm. on earth. Um, and uh, so it's, to me, what I said to my, uh, advisee when we talk about sort of the um, the young man who's feeling so shriveled and and beaten and and you know just by and confused um, if we can figure out a way to get the message <laughs> of how important this time is and how if we can rediscover the ways to fulfill and nourish the soul toward the spirit together and interweave the various potentials uh, into something more coherent then we can, I think, make a move to the adjacent possible and yeah. find ourselves uh, in a new space. Um, and the the integral you talk uh, message really is there's everyone is holding on to partial truths. I mean, there are really there is some, and if we can let go of our defensive position of the you know kind of a modernist sensibility, of, well, this is the justification of what's true, and if, if that's not true, this no, actually, there's a partial trans rationality that is available to us that actually can be integrated with a lot of precision and afford a huge amount of pluralism, and but we can live and nourish ourselves in that space. Um, if we're able to find that culture uh, and do it in time in relationship to the, what's happening with the planet and all the different changes, then man, maybe we can uh, find our way to you know, a realistic heaven. Uh, and at the very least, uh, it tells me what I'm gonna do <laughs> in yeah. relationship to my little baton of energy information and, and my connections and networks and relations with others. How can I be positioned uh, to maximize the likelihood that I'll be a good ancestor and, and do my best to move uh, the system? And I so deeply feel that that's your uh, orientation as well. Yeah, I very much resonate with that. And, you know, at in my university, I'm able to talk to students about those things and we wrestle with you know, cultural and ecological and, and, and psychological and meaning crises in, in our kinds of classes um, with someone like my son, who is a very sensitive person mm. and just beginning to launch into mm -hmm. the world. I don't want to talk to him about some of the daunting things that are there. Yeah. Um, I, I, I do some, but I don't want to drop a big bomb on him. He's trying to just craft a, a life and a career, but I do in, in relating to him, one of the things I, I try to do is just ask questions and spark curiosity and allow for the making of connections in different domains that he can go with yep. as he wants to go. Um, so I, I try to approach it more obliquely and from underneath with questions and promptings rather than um, uh, too much of a, a, 
you know, a heavy world picture to, you know, say, okay, now you've got to save us all. Um, <laughs> right. Right. Well, I was a little less sensitive because as it dawned on me in 2017, uh, 2018, I'd wander around my house going global civilization collapse. <laughs> We're all going to die. And my family would be like, Oh my God, you know, <laughs> but sorry, family, but you know, oh well. <laughs> but I would put it, put a smile on it and say, but maybe it's heaven too. So yeah. you know, you know, there it is. But no, that's funny. Um, and uh, yeah, sensitive. And that's what I, that really is. How do we get the message of, of enough urgency, uh, the proper level of crisis? I thought Jonathan Rousen made a comment about, you know, tasting the pickle. He has a nice frame for it. Mm. And, and what I emphasize also is, listen, there's global civilization collapse, and that can mean endless number of things at a hyper object abstract level. You know, it's a beautiful day. Walk the dog connect mm -hmm. with people you love, you know, and uh, that as long as that opportunity of the consciousness here and now can be afforded, let's take full advantage of it. Beautiful. Amen to that. All righty. Well, Bruce, uh, thank you so much. Is there any uh, place where you want, would like folks to find you, look you up on the web or uh, I could um, leave a link in the show notes or... I could give you that. Yeah, I have a link to, um, but I think the main thing probably where Layman and I both are hanging out the most now is on integral stage. Um, okay. I'm more often behind the scenes nowadays. I used to do more things, but now I'm busy with a lot of the production and all of that. Right. Um, but yeah, definitely that's a place. And uh, uh, we, we have a website um, kind of under construction for our uh, work on religion and spirituality, integral religion and spirituality. Um, that's not ready to share yet, but it will be eventually. And I'll, I'll let you know about that one. Great. Well, I look forward to that coming out and uh, we'll share it as appropriate. And thank you so much for sharing your rhythm with me today. And uh, I deeply appreciate it. And uh, I feel very soul spiritual fulfillment. Bruce, thank you so much. Me too. Thanks so much. Yeah. Have a wonderful Absolutely. day.